So there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who walk according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who walk according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The mind that is set on the flesh is death. And the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God really dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, though your bodies are dead because of sin, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the one, the Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through the Spirit that dwells in you. So brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. He has not given us a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear he has given us the spirit of sonship by which we cry Abba Father when we do that the spirit is bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will re be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the whole creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope that the whole creation will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together like pains of childbirth and not the creation only. But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even we also groan, waiting our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In that hope, we were saved. And who hopes for what he sees? But if you hope for what you do not see, you wait for it with patience. Likewise. The Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray as we ought. 
But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. For we know all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. What are we going to say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not freely with him give us all things? Who's going to bring him a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, who was raised from the dead. Yes, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep and slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so there's a reason that there's a reason that I wanted to to listen to that. Um, Romans is written as a letter, right? And so we're, we've taken one long letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and we're breaking it up and we're reading bits of it at a time. And we teach here expositorily, which means you go or attempt to go word by word and verse by verse and expose the truths that that God's word contains. Um, Romans 8 has a lot of meat. There's a lot of stuff packed into it. So I wanted to listen to it even just for me, right? I wanted to listen to it as it was written, to, to listen to it as Rome read it for the first time, the way that Paul took it from the beginning, which is a transition in the letter, right? Because we've been talking for the last several weeks, Romans 1 through 7, um, about sin and the condition of man and the law and what the purpose of the law was. Jesus, what the purpose of Jesus was, and how he fulfilled the law. And this is a transition between what happens in the first part of the letter and what's going to happen in the latter part. So eight and nine kind of sit like a fulcrum, and the whole teeter-totter rocks on it. So there's a lot packed in here. I'm not going to go in order. Um, I'm going to start kind of at the end, and and I'll explain to you why. Uh, The primary theme of the book of Romans, a lot of people would say that, that it's justification by faith. As I read it, I would maybe say a little more accurately, it's righteousness from God, right? Because God's purpose is not converts, it's disciples. And those aren't my words. If you go on a God Speaks website and you go under who we are, it says we want to conform people to the image of Christ or something thereabouts. Convert isn't the goal. So this isn't justification by faith. This is God giving us the ability to become righteous, which starts with justification. doesn't end there. Um, It starts with, with the receiving, the reception of Christ's gift, and that is the, the catalyst for everything else, 
Um, in Romans 1 through 3, it's kind of Paul's manifesto in the beginning. God's righteous anger. It's very clear. Um, it's, a dark, it's a dark intro, to say the least. Um, Paul was not abashed about saying, here's the, here's the condition that you find yourself in. Uh, Romans 3 and 4, God's solution to the problem of sin. Romans 5, peace with God, right? Death through Adam, the old man, and life through Jesus, the new man. Um, righteousness is imputed to us, that we, that we could be justified, which just means that he takes the righteousness of Christ and he, he gives it to us. He takes a, 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 a condition that exists in someone else and he as, ascribes it to us. Um, Romans 6 and in, into the very beginning of 7 talks about the, uh, the, the death of sin and uh, living in grace and being married to the law. Romans 7 talks about struggling and battling, wrestling with sin, with the advent of, of wickedness. Um, and Romans 8, which is where we find ourselves tonight, is about justification, uh, sanctification, glorification, and adoption as sons into the family of God. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. John Piper says that this is the greatest chapter. <clears throat> he doesn't mean greatest in the sense that it is better than the other ones or that it is more inspired or there's more God-breathed. Um, he says that a- as Christians, there's no more compact place where we see a few really important things. And I, I've, I've come up with six. Um, there's no chapter, at least that I know of in, in the Bible, that more deeply or fully deals with the brokenness of the physical universe. We're going to talk about that later. How it got broken and how it gets unbroken. Uh, Number two, there's no chapter that expresses with more clarity the power of the infallible and unbreakable linkages in our salvation, okay? That that salvation is a chain of events that that has an origin and, and has a fulfillment. Spoiler alert, we are neither of those. We are a link in the middle for certain, right? We have a very distinct role in salvation, but it, it, it begins somewhere, not us and it and it, it is fulfilled and is brought to conclusion somewhere not us um, number three there's no other chapter in the bible that combines the intercession of the holy spirit in us with the intercession of the son for us in the service of the never failing love of god over us and we see this really cool picture of the way the trinity dances with itself right that the holy spirit in us Right? Interceding on our behalf. And the intercession of Jesus for us so that we could have righteousness imputed as a result of God's love over us. And you see this Godhead, this Trinity moving in a, in a very um, cooperating way. And number five, there's no chapter in the Bible that deals more directly and tenderly with our struggle to know that we are children of God period. It is made more plain here, more clear here than anywhere else. Not just to say that you are children of God, but here's the reason you can be. Here's the reason God can view you that way. And Paul unpacks that. Um, The last one, there's no chapter with a more sustained litany of privileges, securities, and assurances to hold us firmly in the keeping love of God. Um. So there's a lot of glorious truths that are marshaled here. Um, ultimately, to help us obey, obey one implied command. Live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. 
live by the spirit, not by the flesh and fulfill and so fulfill the whole law, which what is the whole law? Not, and someone knows the number. There's 831. No, 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 no. What sums up the law? Love the Lord, your God and love your neighbors yourself. Right? So there's no place. There's no place that I know of where all of these truths are marshaled to say, yeah, fulfill, fulfill the law by living according to the spirit. And the law is summed up very easily. L- love, that's it. Um, I don't know how we tackle that in 45 minutes. The reality is we probably won't. This is gonna be, this is like a greatest hits album. Okay, if you bought a greatest, if you bought U2's greatest hits, you would not be familiar with the discography of the entire band, okay? And this isn't just true of this chapter. It's true of a, 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 lot, of the, a lot of the things that we've done in Romans. I'm going to give you the greatest hits. This is not, this is not a convenient chapter to, to, to teach in 45 minutes, especially for someone who's doing it for the first time, right? It doesn't fit neatly into the overhead compartment, right? This is like a U-Haul backed up into the driveway and it's loaded with all this stuff. So I'm going to roll the door up and it's all going to explode out on the driveway and we're going to look at how we organize it. Um, I've divided it into five buckets, okay? Uh, Number one, God's love for us goes back into eternity and is unshakable. Number two, God's love for us gives uh, rise to a chain of salvation. God is working, number three, God is working all things for good through our suffering and by our suffering and that his unshakable, unbreakable love causes him to work things together for our good, namely for his own glory. Uh, Number four, this unleashes the power of the Holy Spirit in us in enabling us to kill sin and to love people, which is primarily our focus for today. And the last one, um, which is a verse that we all love, that we're, that we're more than conquerors. And that entire passage there, except 29 and 30, we can skip over 29 and 30. So we like 28 and then skip over 29 and 30, and then we do the rest of it. Um, but we're, we're, going to, we're going to touch some things that feel really good, and we're going to touch some things that don't feel so great. And in order that I am accountable to God and to the church, I'm going to give them to exactly like they are right here. So open your Bible up to Romans 8. Uh, bucket number one, the, the eternal love of God. We're actually going to start at the very end. This is important. It's important that we start here because at the beginning of the chain, we have God's love. That's it. Right? So we're going to start 38 and 39. For I am convinced, and this is poetic. Romans is a, a theologically heavy book, and Paul, generally speaking, is not particularly arsy. He, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't wax poetic too often. This is, although I am convinced that he believes these things. This is him saying, this is him saying, I threw everything I could think of into this list. And it's, it's beautiful. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things in the present, nor things in the future, nor any powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So I'm starting here because God always comes first. And as we work through the rest of the chapter, it's really important to remember that God is always previous. His work is always previous. His plan is always previous. His ideas are previous. He exists before us. His will exists before us. That's why I'm starting here. John 1, the very beginning of the the Old Testament, the very beginning of the New Testament, right? 1-1. They both postulate this idea that in the beginning was God. And there's reason for that. 
right? Genesis says in the beginning, John 1 says in the beginning, to say that, that I'm starting here because the, the Bible starts there. When we open up to Genesis, and I know that Genesis is in the oldest book, Job is, but the, the way that they are arranged, the way that they are compiled, when I open up my Bible to the beginning, I'm reminded that God came first. And when I get to the to New Testament and I open up the Gospel of John, I'm reminded that God, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word, it, it, it precedes all things. Um, this, verse is, this verse is the foundation for everything that we're going to talk about. Um, the love of God is unaffected even by the extremest changes in our condition. Right? You, if you take your Bible and you flip to Psalm 139, which you are absolutely welcome to do. And if you want to talk about any of these afterwards, I'm open to it. Some things I'm going to paraphrase. Some things I'm going to read directly. And I will tell you when I do, uh, just in the interest of time. It says that, uh, dear writes, if I go up into the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. He said, if I ascend to the highest point, you're there. And if I go into the, the bowels of hell, I find you. That God's love is um, unaffected by the extremist changes in our conditions. Number two, God cannot be diverted from us by any other order of things. And this becomes important later when we start talking about who, who will even bring a charge against God's people. Right? That his love is not diverted because of any other established order. Number three, the love of God raises above the power of time. The reason for that is because God exists outside the concept of time. And that's the thing that's really challenging for our, my futile mind, at least. If you have a great handle on it, please explain it to me later. Um, the same great revelation made to Moses, right? And Moses says, okay, great. So he argues with God first. He's like, I don't, I don't really want to I talk to Pharaoh. I, kinda like, I have a brother. He's a fabulous speaker. So he comes in with plan B. No, no, no. God, let me tell you the way that, shh. I made your mouth, and I'll fill your mouth with the things I want to put in it. Okay, well, then who am I even going to tell him sent me? I am. I, I am that I am. Right? That's your, that's your VIP pass to the throne of whom the Egyptians believed was the physical manifestation of God. You tell him that I am sent you, and that he desires an audience with Pharaoh. Because God exists outside of time. Um, <laughs> that means that yesterday isn't something that he knows about. It's a place that he exists. And tomorrow isn't something that he knows about. It's a place that he is. And that a hundred years from now isn't something that he is aware of. It's a place that he is physically present. He's not bound or restricted by a linear understanding of time, right? And even us, right, who will live forever have an origin. God has neither. And so he has the ability to say with confidence, Paul has the ability to write with confidence that, that nothing in the present or the past or the future can separate you from God's love. Why? Because God isn't subject to time anyway. And number four, the love of God is, is present everywhere. And we talked about that with, with David when he said, I could, there's nowhere I can go to escape it, which sometimes is something to be celebrated and sometimes it's not so great, right? Sometimes you're like, just leave me alone for a minute. Like, nope, can't hide from my love. Love you, mean it, right, right? Like, I just wish you would love me a little less right now. 
Um, not really, but sometimes it's frustrating. You can't run from it, and you can't run to it. It's here, okay? Um, it is important to note that Paul doesn't say that these things can't befall us. Principalities and powers and all of these things, they can affront us as believers. He simply says they can't separate you from the love of God. And, and that's important later. Um, like I said, this is foundational. So we're going to start really broad and build up to the pinnacle. Um, he doesn't say that you, you won't encounter strife in a lot of these things. He says that, they, that those things are incapable of separating you from God's love. Um, number two, right? So we get, number one, the eternal love of God. It precedes all things. It is after all things. It is in all things. It surrounds time. And is, I'm incapable of saying anything about it that would make you go, oh yeah, I understand that in a new way. We've heard that over and over because we like that. It's comforting. Number two, There's a chain of salvation, right? Starts somewhere. It is fulfilled somewhere. We have a role in it. And this issue right here, we're going to read about in verse 29 and 30. So get ready. This issue has divided the church for thousands of years. And some of the greatest Christian minds disagree. Past and present, and I can guarantee future, disagree about what this means. I'm going to attempt simply to encourage us to have a proper attitude towards God's role in salvation and our role in salvation. I'm not going to attempt to parse, well, is it, is it predestination or is it free will? Listen to the, what the verses say. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that they might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, if I back up one verse, we've got like a t-shirt or a coffee mug because we love this verse. And we know that all things, then in all things, God works for the good of those who, who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. If you go through a dark season, someone will tell you this verse. Guarantee it. And I am super immature in my face. Faith, sometimes I don't want to punch them in the face when they tell me that. I'm like, sorry, brother, I guess that's for your good. God will work that together for you. You got some blood on your shirt. Because, and, but just because I'm immature, and it feels like a platitude sometimes, right? No worries, it's all going to work together for your good. Let's talk about what that actually means, right? Um, he's saying that all things work together for the good of those who love him. So first of all, this is not true for everyone. And that's, that's a stark reality, at least of the way I understand the passage. Because not everyone loves him. There are those who have rejected him. Maybe sitting right here in these seats. So this is true for those who love him, number one, and who are called according to his purpose. The reality of this is that my life serves a purpose and it's not my own. My life serves the purpose of an eternal God and it serves that purpose in my joy and it serves that purpose in my sorrow if I love him. But we're not at 28, we're at 29 and and, and 30. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Make two mistakes, two broad mistakes when we're trying to parse this, uh, this passage out. The first one is to say, well, what does foreknowledge really mean? And what does predestination really mean? And what did Paul mean by those things exactly? If you've read the New Testament at all, uh, or anything that Paul wrote, you know that he... De- 
does he come off as a guy who uses slang? Really? Like when he says, if Paul calls you a fool, he's not saying like, hey, what's up, fool? That's not Paul's MO, right? He's calling you a fool. In Galatians, when he says, watch out for those dogs, he's not talking about his homeboys. Like, they're my dogs, dude. It's not that. He's saying, watch out for those dogs, those beasts, those brutes. Paul doesn't use slang. He's not prone to it, at least. So when he uses the word foreknowledge and predestined, he's using them as they read. Foreknowledge simply means knew about ahead of time, or the the actual translation would be loved before time existed. So those that God loved in the beginning, he also predestined. Predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Those thoughts are connected. And in the argument between, do I have autonomy over my own life or not? We like to separate them and say, well, it says right there that they're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son to be sanctified, to be made holy, to be made like Jesus. Those are connected. The second game people play because they're anxious and they don't really know how this works, and I am guilty of this myself. They say what foreknowledge means is that God got into his DeLorean and he adjusted the flux capacitor and he drove down the road of time and he said, okay, so Justin, okay, hey, guys, Justin is going to pick us in the future, so go ahead and write his name in the book. All right, I got to go. I got to go check on someone else. Remember how much we love the idea that God is not bound by time when we're talking about his love. The reality is that we have to accept the same condition right here. That God is not bound by time. He doesn't look down the hallway of time and go, what's going to happen in the future? Remember, he exists there and here. And way back then, he's not bound by time and his knowledge of what will come to pass, right? That's tough. Sometimes for our pride. It's tough to read it, right? Those whom he foreloved, he also predestined. I will be perfectly honest with you. I am not a fanboy of Calvin. And he had some major behavioral issues. He, had, he once had someone executed. He had someone murdered because he lost a debate to them. And I couldn't care less if you walk out of here tonight knowing what tulip means. And I couldn't care less if you call yourself a Calvinist. I care if you understand that the sovereignty of God exists over your life. Okay? I care if... You understand that God has a plan and he means to execute it. I care that you understand in times of joy or sorrow that God is shaping you because it is his will to do so. It it, it makes him sovereign, right? Now, Christian theology teaches this idea of provenient grace and we're gonna leave this, we're gonna leave these verses here tonight. It says that before man can seek God, God must have first sought the man. That there is a point where God's previous work meets man's response in the here and now. Okay? You tracking with me there? That there is a point where God's previous work meets man's response in the here and now. Before a sinful man can think a right thought of seeking God, there must have been a work of enlightenment done in him. Imperfect though it may be, a work of enlightenment nonetheless. 
and it is the source of his seeking and desire to know God. We pursue God and only because we pursue God because he first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. No man can come to me, said Jesus, except the Father which sent me draws him. And by this prevenient drawing, this previous work of God, God takes from us every vestige of credit in the act of our coming to be aware of him and love him. The impulse to pursue God originates with God. But the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after him, all the time pursuing him while we're already in his hand. Thy right hand upholdeth me, right? I fought the good fight. I've run the race. These reasons I press on towards the goal, right? That is our response in the present. Even the act of faith itself, Ephesians says, listen, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And the faith is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. So there's no swagger about it. Both God and man have a role in salvation, in salvation and the calibration that we're going to leave it with tonight is that God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing. Jesus says, you can come to me if my Father draws you. Why? Because God is after the praise of his glorious grace. And this is where our response becomes important. This is your link in the chain. He's not after your begrudging submission. Right? He, he's not after me going, well, I better behave myself or he's going to send me to hell. It's not what he's after. He's after my joy because it brings him glory. And that's what God is about. We talked about that earlier. Disciples, not converts. He's after my joyous, my joyous acceptance of what he freely gives me so that I can know him and love him. And I can tell you this, that our, the greatest hope that we have in the world is wrapped up in the idea that God is about himself and about the praise of his glorious name. The only hope that we have, not just the greatest hope, the only hope we have is that we sit at the foot of the throne of a God who is self-centered and very much about himself and praise for his name and glory for his name through whatever means necessary. That is our only hope. If he was about other things, none of this matters. Because God is the only thing that always has been and always will be. So if he is not about the praise of that, if he is not about obtaining glory for that, then whatever he is about ceases to exist at some point or originated at some point. And our faith is futile. So remember, again, that, that this runs very contrary to what the world will tell you, and it offends my millennial sensibilities. God says, do sex like this. Do money like this. Do marriage like this. Do these things this way. And it's not him trying to flex you into a frustrated existence where he robs you of all your joy. Rather, it's him leading you to the fullness of joy. And the real issue is that I think I'm smarter than God, right? (laughs) Because I want to come to him and say, hey, you don't know my life and you don't know my family and you don't know my financial situation. And here's why the rules don't apply to me. I will tell you this, no one has robbed me of joy like I have. All my postulating and all of my plans and all of my reasoning and all of my sitting in front of God saying, if you would just listen to me and hear me out, we could make this work. And no one has robbed me of joy like I have robbed myself of it. 
Again, because my present response to God's previous work often is, no, 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 no. I've got a brother. He's a fabulous speaker. Send him to Pharaoh. And God says, no, no, no. I make deaf who I make deaf and dumb who I make dumb. And I made your mouth and I'll put words that I want to put in it. Because that's who God is. Bucket number three. So we've got the eternal... Right, enduring love of God. And we've got this chain of salvation which doesn't originate or become fulfilled as a result of work that we do. Right? We, we have a link in it. We have an accountability before God who doesn't want us to go, well, I guess, you know, and the Calvinist was, oh, well, I mean, I guess it's his plan. I have no, 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 no. He wants you to seek him and push hard after him while he upholds you all the time in his hand. Bucket number three, present suffering, future glory. So we just sang a song, right? Let this heartache point to your glory. And every new scar pushed me to praise for your redeeming the broken and the hurting. For what? For the glory of your mighty name. That's the point. Like that's, that. that's, the, that's God's hashtag, right? It really is. Glory to me. Praise be to me. Yes, I sustain you through suffering for the glory of my name. Yes, I work all things together for your good because I love you, because that brings me glory. Verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation uh, for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom, the glory of the children of God. And we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. The hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works those together for the, uh, for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Here's the six truths in this. There are five or six truths in this, in this passage. All creation has been subjected to futility. There are three potential people who could have subjected it. God, us, or Satan. There's no, there's no other, there are no other players, right? So as I read through this verse and I say, uh, we know that the whole creation is, yeah, yeah, sorry, I can't find the verse. For crea- uh, verse 20, for creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the, by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. So those words right there, that it was done with hope. I subjected creation to frustration. Right? I made it futile in hope that something. It doesn't even matter what that thing is. If it was done in hope, it was done by God. It wasn't done by me, because I certainly don't have the kind of foresight. It wasn't done by Eve. It most certainly wasn't done by Adam right, who was lollygagging around while the devil was dancing with his wife, 
at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He certainly didn't go, well, I'm going to subject creation to futility and hope that, no, no, that did not happen. God subjected creation to futility. That, this is a tough pill to swallow for me. Why? Why would he do that? In the hope that redemption might be kindled in men's hearts and that someday the freedom of the glory of the children of God might shine more brightly. And God is the only person capable of, of causing events to happen in, in that way. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, We do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, being corrupted, subjected to futility, right? Our inner man is being renewed uh, day by day. And the word that Paul uses here for decay or corrupt is the same one as used in Luke 12 when Jesus says, hey, make sure your treasure's in heaven where a thief doesn't come near and a moth does not corrupt. He's saying put your hope in the right place, put your treasure in the right place because God has subjected the world to futility in hope that you may understand what has lasting value. So, Paul is really clear, verse 23, that an age of deliverance is coming, that we groan within ourselves. And the expression here denotes deep or strong internal desire. If you were to flip over to Mark 7, 34, Jesus getting ready to heal a man, and says he looked up into heaven with a deep sigh. It's one of the only miracles that Jesus didn't pray before. In fact, he doesn't say anything. Why? Because the guy that he's talking to can't hear him. He can't see him. And he can't speak to him. And here's the creator of the universe standing in front of this man with no way to communicate to him. Here's what I'm about to do. And he was brokenhearted. And he looked into heaven and he groaned. Because he had no way to communicate to his child. So he groaned for the age of deliverance, which, which is promised. Number three, Christ purchased, and we see that in the passage we just read, right? It's verses 18 through 28, all about suffering and bringing things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Christ purchased and, and gave us a preview of this. So the answer, and the Jews were expecting this to happen. The answer why Jesus didn't raise all of the dead, right? Contrary to Jewish expectation, um, they, they thought the first Messiah was going to do that, right? It was, it was not something that they were prepared for, the way that it happened. So just what he annoyed them in his life, he annoyed them in his death, he annoyed them in his resurrection. They just were, they were very sensitive to Jesus and the person of Jesus because they had all these expectations. The first coming of the Messiah was not the consummation and full redemption of this falling age. The first coming was rather to purchase that consummation, to illustrate its character, to fulfill the law. So Jesus raised some of the dead to illustrate that he has power. He raised himself to illustrate that he has power and that sin does not. And he healed the sick to illustrate that in his final kingdom, this is how it's going to be for everybody because this is how I intended it from the beginning. I tell you, there are people, and be weary of them. There are miracle mongers in our church who will malign this passage and manipulate God's children with it. They will tell you that you need more faith, and they will heap guilt after guilt after guilt upon your back. Right? That if you don't have all the things you want, if you're not well, if you encounter struggle, if you encounter pain, if you encounter suffering, it's because you need more faith, brother. It's complete bull. It's total bull. 
And they are either lying to you or they've grossly misunderstood the scripture it has written. Not just this scripture, but many scriptures. They are snakes and they want to charm you. Do not believe the things that they teach. And why am I worked up about that? Because one of the most important relationship, one of the most important, some of the greatest growth that we get comes from seasons where we must rely on the spirit of God to sustain us. And to say to a, a believer who lives in a condemned world, a fallen world to say, hey man, it's just because you don't have enough faith, brother. No, it is not. It is because the spirit of God who lives in you is engaged in the process of sanctifying you. Job is the classic example, right? That was, that was God's idea, not Satan's idea. Satan was roaming over the earth looking for someone to devour and God said, hey, what about him? That didn't happen outside of God's sovereign plan. That wasn't Satan's idea. It wasn't Job's immorality or his disobedience. It was God's idea. He said, hey, have you considered my servant Job? What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. Righteous dude. Bet you can't break him. Really? God's idea, not Satan's. And we see there in the midst of it, right? It is the the boilerplate story about suffering and faithfulness. And Job at the end finally says, hey man, what is going on with all these things? And God says, sit down and listen to me. And he gives probably one of the most uh, aggressive rebuffs that he's ever given, at least in the written scripture, to one of his children. Full of sarcasm and lots of funny things, by the way. Like, tell me where you were. And I mean, surely you know the answer to all these things, right? How the ocean stops here and where I keep the rain and where I keep the snow and how the sun comes up. I mean, you were there, right? You are so many in all of your years, Job. Tell me where you, tell, tell me how we, we wove these things together. And Job says, I am, I'm, I'm a fool. But all of his suffering, everything that was taken from him, everything that he lost, everything he went through, that originated with God saying, hey, right there. Not with Satan, and certainly not with Job, who happily would have opted out, right? Um, I've got a brother. He's a fabulous guy, right? He should have taken a page from the Moses book. So there's, there's, this, there's the suffering bucket, right? That we have to understand that God uses suffering, catalyzes suffering, allows suffering for some very specific reasons. And like I said, this is greatest hits. I'll be happy to go through it in great detail if you'd like, because that is not something that is easily absorbed, even for me. It is not very palatable. It's tough to understand, other than to say that this is right now. Little piece of tape right there. This is right now. And we spend a lot of time thinking about where am I going to work and who am I going to marry? And I got to start my 401k like at about this point on the tape. And then I got like, okay, so I want to retire by here, right? And God says, hey, hey, this is what I see. This is the arena where my glory exists. Stop worrying about the tape. Because it's going to be gone. I've condemned it to futility. We get wrapped up in it. 
He said, make that about this. Otherwise it dies with you and it serves no purpose. It will be forgotten and it is not important. Or make it about me and it's of lasting importance. And that's the difference between a hope and a wish, right? We, we, there's a lot of hope in this passage. It's important to understand what hope is. And we use it synonymous with a wish, right? Man, I hope I win the lottery. No, you don't. And anyone who's ever known the pain of poverty would tell you, you don't hope that you win the lottery. You wish you would win the lottery. But if you live in the clutches of poverty, you hope that you can afford your next meal. And, and I'm not talking about complete decimating poverty. I'm talking about if, if you've ever struggled with unemployment, wondering how you're going to pay your rent. Hope is only something that has substance if it, two things. It's really important. If you're taking notes, I don't know if you are, if you take notes, write this down. It's probably one of the most important things I'm going to say tonight that's not reading straight from the Bible. In order for hope to have substance, two things have to happen. It has to acknowledge pain. And it has to say that the story doesn't end there. In order for hope to be of any lasting value, it must acknowledge pain. Otherwise, there is nothing to hope against. You wish maybe one day you get to buy this house or have a pool or kids or a wife or a husband. And you go, yeah, I've been single for so long. Really hope I get married. I get it. Loneliness is a struggle. It's tough. You know, Justin, you understand I have a cat. Okay, okay. (laughs) That's okay. I'll tell you what. I had a tearful conversation with a really close friend of mine late last night and told her, listen, and this is true in my life too. I I can't give you examples from my marriage because I'm not married, but I can talk to you about struggle and suffering out of a life of someone who from time to time experiences loneliness as a single person. And I said, let me tell you this, that the pain you feel right now is nothing compared to the pain that you will feel if you are married to a guy living down the hall from you who has no desire to love you and know you like Christ knows and loves the church. The loneliness that you feel now absent whomever God has planned for you, if he has someone planned for you, is nothing compared to the loneliness that you will feel living down the hall from a husband who does not want to wrap you in the word of God and love you the way that Christ loved the church. That is loneliness. And I don't have an answer for her other than to say there's hope in the middle of your, of your struggle and hope has to acknowledge pain and then it has substance. Otherwise, you're wishing for something and wishing is okay. But in order for hope to have any substance, it's got to exist amidst pain and acknowledge it. The last one. All of these things, right? So God's eternal love, which is the foundation, right? The the concrete foundation of God's eternal love has anchored in the middle of it, the chain of salvation of which we bear a link most certainly, but, but of salvation which starts and ends with God. This allows us to receive the Holy Spirit through his pursuit of us, through his wooing of us, through his previous work, through the death of his son, through all of the things that happened from Genesis 3 forward, right? 
In the very beginning, he's making a way. Not just in Jesus. He evicts them from the Garden of Eden. What happens? He kills something to cover them. And he says, you guys are going out in the wilderness. This is not the garden. So even then, something had to die, and God was providing. Amidst the destruction that he knew would be invited into the human race, he still looked at Adam and Eve and said, you can't go out there like that. I mean, I can't let you stay, but you can't go out there like that. So let's see what Romans says in in, uh, chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condensed them in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind is governed by the flesh, is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Why is that important? If you jumped to Hebrews 12, which don't, keep your place there. It says that you should strive for peace with everyone and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Okay, and we'll come back to that. Um, Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death or futility, right? Like we have these decaying bodies, the old man, Adam, death, sin, So even though your body is dead, oh, excuse me, uh, uh, sorry. Even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. Verse 11, and if the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body because of the spirit who lives in you. Verse 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. Verse 13, for you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die but if by the Spirit you will put to death the misdeeds of the body and you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So God's eternal love, it drives and catalyzes this unbreakable chain of salvation, right? That brings us to justification through Christ, allows us to receive the Holy Spirit. And amidst the the condemned, fallen, broken world to become sanctified apart from the law, right? Because the law has been fulfilled. He doesn't drive us to Christ for justification and then say, okay, go back on over to the law for sanctification. He says, no, I fulfilled the law. Here's the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor. That's the law. It sums up the law and the prophets. Verse 14, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. So the Holy Spirit does what the law can't do. It justifies and sanctifies. We each, and I don't mean everyone in this room, I mean every human ever to live, from the poorest person to the richest, every ruler, every governor, everyone you've ever met or been related to, everyone who hasn't been born yet has two problems. Number one, we are guilty before God and his righteousness requires that we be condemned. Number two, we are rebellious before God. And we love his creation more than we love him. The law cannot, is powerless. To, the law cannot resolve these problems. It can only expose them. It is simply the written, uh, 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 the written manifestation of God's righteousness. And all it does is expose our fallenness. So here's God's response. He turns us, number one, he turns us away from the law. Remember, this happens now with the spirit. He turns us away from the law and towards Jesus whom he sacrificed. 
And this was made really clear last week in chapter 7. We're not going to rehash it. Number two, okay, rebellious before God, and we love his creation more than we love him. Here's God's response to that. Does, does he turn us away, send us back to the law? No. Romans 5, and we covered this a few weeks ago, says that the law came so transgression would increase. What? Wait a minute. The law came so transgression would increase. Transgression increases so that more grace would be desperately needed. Therefore, expressed by God, making him eligible for what? More glory. Right? Hashtag glory to me. Right? The law, I gave you the law so that transgression would be even more exposed. Like when Paul says, I'm the chief of all sinners. Right? It's not that he was the worst sinner in the world. It's the closer he drew to the source of light, the more his sin was exposed. The law exists to expose sin so that transgression may abound so that in forgiveness I receive more glory. God speaking is God. Sorry, not me. I get no glory in that. Well, not right now, but later I do. So read uh, verse, if, if we were to go to 521, sin reigned as in death, even that grace would reign through righteousness. Right? So this is where the Holy Spirit comes into play. And there's a reason why we talk about sin and the law and salvation and our roles in it before we talk about what's coming next. And next week is part of that transition too, but this is really important. The rest of Romans after nine is essentially the closest thing we have to an operations manual for the believer. And it's really important that we talk about salvation and all those things before. So that there's not this misunderstanding that if you live this way, this is the new law. And if you live this way, then you get to know Jesus and have the spirit. That's not the way that it works. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times in this passage and he's the theme of it. He's the most important role in this part of Romans. And just to be clear, he's, he is to our spiritual lives what God the Father is to the physical world. Right? He, he is the catalyst and the sustainer of our spiritual lives, much like God sustained and created the world. It's not an influence. He's not a person. We never refer to it as it. It is he as the third member of the Godhead, equal to the Father, equal to the Son, in deity, in personhood, in personality. And if you study for the, the Bible, you see that that is represented very clearly. He was active in creation. He indwelt certain people uh, living in the Old Testament for special empowering. He convicts men. He enables men to serve God. He's the agent by which the scriptures were written, right? He's the agent by which the scriptures were written. He is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, holy, and glorious. The Bible calls him God, Lord, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of the Lord God, Spirit of the Father, Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of Jesus, Spirit of Christ, and the Spirit of his Son. And to us, he is the comforter. He's involved in the witnessing to the testimony of Christ. He's involved in regenerating and bringing around new birth. He's, he is what Jesus left us to do what Jesus said would be greater things than even he did. And he lives here. So that's the last one, right? It's the first bucket, this eternal, enduring, unbreakable love that is the anchor for this unbreakable chain of salvation in which we do play a part, in which he wants to bring you into the fullness of joy. And we exist in a fallen, broken, 
world that is subject to, where we are subject to every kind of pain imaginable. So that we place our hope in things that extend beyond that piece of tape on the wall and that are anchored to this so that the Spirit can sustain us, so that he can receive glory. very last bucket, which is the best passage here. Right? This is verse 1. There, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. More important words are, are not spoken in the whole of Scripture. Parallel words are spoken. And I, again, I'm not, that's not a challenge to Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. I'm not saying that it's more inspired. I'm saying that there is nothing that condenses the truth, the overarching will of God from from the moment of the fall, actually from before time existed, more important words cannot be spoken. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, And then what should we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He will, how will he not also along with him graciously give to us all other things? Who, who will bring any charge against those who God, whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So if you know him, use this as an opportunity to thank him for unfailing love and unbreakable chain of salvation the spirit that sustains you amidst a fallen, broken world that his patience may sustain so others may come to know him so that he can receive more glory. Thank him for those things. If you don't know him, nothing else matters. If you do know him and you've driven yourself back to the law to be like him, you're missing the most important part. And that's okay. Okay. Because Jesus says, I'm not letting you go. We'll get through this. I I started it. I'll be faithful to finish it. So keep walking, keep confessing, keep pressing in, but don't let go. I will heal you. And Satan stands behind you and says, "You're you're a failure. And Jesus says, who will even bring a charge against you? You're mine. What court could they possibly charge you? And everything's mine. It's all mine. Let them bring the charge to me on your behalf. That's love. That in my fallenness and my pride, God looked upon me from eternity. And he said, I want him in my family. Not as a way to minimize my role in salvation or make me feel like a robot or take away the control that I have over my own life. Quite the opposite. So that the fullness of the way he created with my agency and my creativity 
and my ability to have relationships and be drawn into relationships with other people so that the fullness of that would be known in me because I could be redeemed in him, not because I conform myself to some sort of moral code. And I'm not, I'm not saying that the church teaches that, but sometimes we kind of get off. And there's a lot of talk about morality and people are conforming themselves to these moral codes, but they don't know Jesus. Who cares? It's the resurrection of Christ that justifies. That's why it's so important. That's why the cross is so important. Because it reminds us that the wrath of God is gone. There's no more wrath. For those who know Jesus, for those who love him, it's gone. And we got this compartmentalization thing where we kind of go, I don't know if God could see all that I am or somehow knew, then maybe he wouldn't have gone to the cross. Um, Listen, Christ knew you would be messy. He knew you would be drawn to things that are wicked. He knew you were going to stumble and you were going to feel dirty or feel awkward. That's the whole point of the cross is that there's mighty picture of God's love for you in pursuit of you despite you. And so the cross, although necessary because of you and because of me, is the singular great reminder that we have that he loves you. And he can look at you now and say, my son, my daughter, perfect, spotless, blameless. And we end with this, verse 15 in chapter eight. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. I'm adopted. I've never met my biological parents. And the first season of life was difficult because drugs were a significant activity for my biological mother. I've never once looked upon my parents and thought, they're my adoptive parents. It doesn't enter into my thinking, partly because I was so young, but because I understand this. And this is easy for me to accept. and And I thank God for that. But understand what he's saying here. The spirit I've given you doesn't condemn you. Don't live in fear. You've been brought into sonship. Co-equal, co-eternal, co-inheriting with my own son playing some role in eternity next to him. So as we enter into worship, and I know that I've gone too long. I tried. As we, as we enter into worship, identify where you stand amidst all of that. And I know that that's a lot of stuff to weigh and to parse. If you don't know him, nothing else matters. And don't be overwhelmed with what it means next and what about all the rules and what about it? Stop it. Stop it. Seek him. Accept him. Because he'll keep coming. He will pursue and he will chase because you can't hide from it. Let's pray. (sighs) Heavenly Father, thank you for these men and women and thank you for your gospel. Thank you that, that you save. You save. We don't save. You save. Thanks for my brothers and my sisters who can't imagine that you would love them because of where they've been or what they've done or where their life is right now. I pray that they would put aside foolish thoughts like that and submit to the grace and the mercy that you've extended to them in Christ. 
For those who are so proud of themselves, they're able to look at other people and feel better about themselves than they do about other people. God, I pray that you would destroy their hearts in front of you and that they would repent of glorying in only what you should glory in. Because God forbid that I should boast in anything other than your cross. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray.